Hello, and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In true roundtable fashion, we have a number of topics we're going to cover today, and joining us to do so are returning guests and longtime friends of the show, Jody Lemoyne and Tom Hollingsworth. So sit back, relax, grab a cookie or two, and we'll be right back with today's episode. So first things first, the 2019 Network Collective Listener Survey is live, and we'd really like your feedback on what you think we're doing well and what you think we can do better. We know your time is valuable, so we've held off on doing this as long as we could, but it's time. And we need some help in setting direction for the show. We promise it'll only take you a few minutes, uh, and you'll have our unending gratitude for helping us out. The easiest way that you can get to the survey is by going to thenetworkcollective.com and clicking the banner at the top of the page. While you're there, and after you've completed the survey, of course, you should check out what Network Collective membership has to offer. There's quite a bit of member-exclusive content that we've put out over the last year, in addition to some great guest-contributed content as well. In addition to the exclusive content, we have what I consider to be the best Slack in all of network engineering that our members get exclusive access to. The large majority of our members say that this is easily the best resources they get, the best resources, the best resource they get as part of their membership, and the quality of conversation that goes on there daily continues to impress me. If you're looking to join in on the conversation with some of the best networking professionals around, head on over to thenetworkcollective.com slash join to get details on all that membership entails. That's thenetworkcollective.com slash join. So let's get to it. Tom, Jody, thanks for joining me on the show today. Uh, in planning for the topics we wanted to cover, uh, Jody brought up one that's a bit of a sore subject for me, <laughs> and I think it's likely to generate some good conversation. So let's start there. Um, and it really... it. it it's encompassed by how the entire industry seems to be moving towards subscription-based licensing and subscription-based purchasing. And since Jody really wants to push my buttons today, why don't we start with his take on this change? So uh, what do you think about it, Jody? Well, I think there's a time and place for it. Uh, traditionally, we've had subscription-based models for things that are ongoing services. These things make a whole lot of sense. Um, you've got antivirus subscriptions, that kind of stuff. That's that's always been around. That's an ongoing service that constantly has people working on it, as opposed to a fixed product. Now, admittedly, that gray line is blurring a little bit because with cloud-based services, there is no fixed version. There is no fixed deliverable. And that's a whole nother thing I would like to complain about on another show. But <laughs> th there is a constant development going on. The problem is when there is a fixed product and people are selling that as a service. So you're continually paying and paying and paying for what is essentially the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're seeing this more and more, right? We're seeing this, I mean, because I'm with you. On, on the software side of things, it absolutely makes sense. Where people are continuing to put effort into the product, you're continuing to get, and you brought up antivirus, which is the classic example, right? They're continuing to develop signatures. I keep getting value from that investment I'm putting into their product. If I stop paying them, I still have the product. It still works. It just stops updating at the point I stop paying them. So I got what I paid for, and consequently, it stops updating when I stop paying them for the services that they're providing. But that's the key. They're providing a service. And as we, mm -hmm. as we move to like purchasing hardware this way, I think is where it gets frustrating. I mean, and, and I'm not, I really am not trying to poke, but Meraki, I think is the one who, who kind of came out first with this model, right? Is, the idea mm -hmm. is that you're going to, you're going to buy, you're going to buy your license and you have to have that subscription. And if that subscription expires, your hardware stops working. Now, you still have a hardware cost. You still have a fixed capital cost. It still costs you money to buy the hardware. Theoretically, it's cheaper to buy the hardware because you're supplementing it with the services. Uh, I'll leave that to the listener to believe whether or not that's true. 
Um, but the, the reality is, is that you're still paying for, you, you, you lose access to using the equipment if that subscription goes away. And all of a sudden that hardware is useless to you. And so, you know, what is that now? Now you could, I think it was fine when you had a choice, <laughs> you know, you got in, you could choose Meraki. And if that model worked for you, that's fantastic. Like there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing inherently bad with it. The problem is, is that we're, it's looking like we're losing that choice. It's looking like everybody's going that direction. It doesn't matter how you purchase hardware or who you buy it from. The options you have of buying hardware that's not based off a subscription license is, is dwindling, right? Everyone seems to be going after this. Do you think that that's true? I'm kind of getting some responses here. And <laughs> I, I think it is. Um, it's not universally true. There are still a number of companies that still do that single purchase model. But I think it grew out of the whole SmartNet thing where people would buy SmartNet with Cisco or, or whatever other service package they wanted with other vendors. And then they would have the choice as to whether they would renew that, that, that service agreement based on any number of business decisions, but they knew that if they didn't buy that subscription, they would lose access to this, that, and the other thing. And the companies that are selling those subscriptions are going, hey, that's lost revenue. What if we had a lock-in so that buying the smart net or buying whatever you want to call the service subscription is now no longer an option? That that really makes the sales numbers look shiny. I mean, it does. And I mean, I, I try to put myself in the other shoes as well. I mean, if I'm sitting on the board of some company and other companies are getting a piece of the pie of this, you know, monthly recurring revenue number, man, MRR is everything in sales, right? Like, why wouldn't why, you? Why wouldn't yeah. I want a piece of that pie, right? Like, if that, and, and that works and it's great. And believe me, Meraki's not struggling. Like, they're selling here oh, and they're doing God, well no. and they continue to develop, you know, and, and, and to be fair, when we talk about Meraki, Meraki implements new features into their products all the time. Now, one could say that that's separate from hardware and software, but like when we talk about SD-WAN, one of their pitches on SD-WAN, while Meraki is not as, let's say, feature-rich as many of the other SD-WAN feature uh, players out there, they did offer it to everybody who had MX. Like you didn't have to go buy a new license. Mm -hmm. Like it, it literally just became part of, of the process. So there might be some value to this model because traditionally what we've seen is we've seen companies locking people out of new features to encourage hardware refresh. Whereas if you're paying a subscription, mm -hmm. who cares which hardware you're on? You're going to pay the money whether you're on version one or version two. The only reason to do a hardware refresh is if you actually need the hardware refresh and you get access to the features. Now, obviously, that, that system can be gained too, but there's some advantage there. Because, I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's pick on someone else. If it was HP or, or Cisco proper or whoever, and they came out with SD-WAN software that would run on top of existing equipment, it wouldn't be just, oh, yeah, we'll just enable that feature for you. <laughs> there's going to be some uptick. You're going to have to go buy no. it, right? Like in one way, whether you're buying yeah. a software license or a hardware license, there's going to be another uptick. And that wasn't even wrong. And you probably have to buy it as a separate subscription. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic. But, but the idea is, right, you know, there was some value there um, that they were able to provide mm -hmm. to their existing customers. Their existing customers had to do no nothing. If you had MX products, you just, you had their SD-WAN. And it was just like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's some value there. But I think that, you know, I don't know. I think choice is good. <laughs> and, and, and I yep. think that, you know, having that choice is good. And as I see other companies heading that direction, uh, my concern isn't the fact that there are some that do and some that don't. My concern is that that's a really attractive piece of the pie that I think everybody wants is that MRR. And then as it becomes more attractive, I think it's going to become harder and harder to find anyone, anyone that doesn't sell that way. 
And with margins shrinking on hardware and expanding on subscriptions, why wouldn't you? Well, I mean, if, if the hardware really does become commoditized, I think this is the risk, right? I think that we're not seeing the hardware become commoditized. The hardware is still reassuringly expensive. Right, like the hardware isn't getting any cheaper. The hardware, in fact, is just as expensive, if not more expensive. I'm just locked in subscription pricing now than what it is. I mean, uh, w when we see, you know, I know that Cisco did in their best effort to make the cost of a 9300 pretty much identical to what you would pay if you went out to buy a Cat 36 or 38 when they first came out with their new licensing models and whatever, which is good. That's a good thing. Like, I mean, trying to make it cost neutral, but that was on a, I think a five-year horizon. And for shops that go longer than five years on hardware, that model doesn't work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, mm -hmm. you, 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 and the smaller the shop, right, the, the longer the they run. And we talk about service provider. I mean, look at cat uh, 6,500. How many, how many places have cat 6,500 that have been in there 10, 15 years? With the same box running, right? And and you'll never see. I mean, like the the cost on something like that would be exponentially more expensive because you're going to keep paying that subscription. Now they, you know, in Cisco defense, since we since we brought them up, they they say you have to buy it for three years, but after three years you don't have to add it again, right? Maybe that's the model that's coming is that there's a a subscription up front to kind of encourage you to do that. But I I maybe the cynic in me, but I look at that and say that eh, that's probably just the the baby step into doing this to get people familiar with it. And then next, next to come, it's going to become yeah. this, you know, permanent, more like the Meraki style where you pay the subscription or the hardware doesn't work. I hope it doesn't <laughs> get to that point because that really the subscription versus non-subscription, that's a business decision I can understand. It's, it, it makes perfect sense from a, from a vendor's perspective, but being locked out of the hardware that you have purchased because you don't have a subscription. That's kind of the line that that when you cross it, it starts making me twitch. And, and to be fair, there aren't many players who are doing that today. Now, and it's also a semantic thing. So like not again, not to pick on Meraki, but I'm, we've been using them as an example. So it's not a, a bad one to stick with. If they had said, all right, well, we're going to increase the price of the subscription and we're going to roll the price of the hardware into the subscription and just hand it to you. It would amount to the same thing, but the optics would be yeah, completely different. Yeah, and that's different. very true, because now you're not paying for the hardware. I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is the optics, the idea that, oh, not only, not only am I paying for this piece of hardware, now that hardware may be, you know, it may be significantly cheaper because you're paying for the subscription than what they would have to charge if they didn't have the subscription. It, it may, that may be true, but you're still paying for it. And because you're paying for it, because it's not all wrapped into the subscription, but I have seen models where you pay for the subscription, the hardware is included, right? And you just, you know, a three-year mm -hmm. refresh cycle. Every three years, you get a new piece of hardware. Whatever the newest generation is at that time, you get that newest right. generation. If you want to run five, that's up to you because you don't want to be disrupted. That's cool. But after three years, you're entitled to an upgrade. You know, like, and and and, and mm -hmm. maybe that model would be more attractive. I think it's the. I think it's exactly what you said. I bought this hardware. I paid for it. I should be able to use it. <laughs> And that's the thing, like I'm, I'm working on a, a small scale version of that myself with the whole three year cycle, include the hardware and all of that. And I'm finding the numbers are going to add up quite nicely for it, but I don't want my customers buying the hardware and then me saying, okay, well, in order for it to keep working, <laughs> keep paying <me." laughs> I don't, I don't know. Maybe you're missing that, out on a great business opportunity fly. there, Jody. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, you know, there's there are certain deals I don't want to make. But uh, yeah, but going back to the commodity discussion, you know, you can say it's not commodity because it costs a lot. I don't know if that's necessarily the sole definition of commodity here. I've I've never done a teardown on the Meraki MXs and seen what's inside, but I'm willing to bet their switches don't have UAPs sure. in them. Uh, it- I'm willing to bet they're made off the shelf. Equi- uh, made so, yeah, off the so shelf maybe equipment. I was there, you know, speaking more about what the end result of moving to commodity should be, and that is that the price should reduce. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, you know, that the that the you know the actual commoditization is in the hardware itself. So the idea is, if, if we go to ubiquitous mm-hmm. systems that get produced at mass scale, the cost should go down, and, and that's not what it we're should. necessarily seeing in the products that are in this. Now we see this in disaggregation, which we might talk about in a little bit. Um, where we are talking about true commodity style hardware and we see that hardware price kind of, kind of dropping, but it's not, I mean, it's not what we're seeing when, when we're talking about subscription licenses, at least not universally. But I think the key there is that the cost is going down, but the value, the, the profit margin hasn't shrunk at all because what's happening is, is that while the cost of assembling the goods has gone down, companies are still charging the same price for that equipment plus a subscription fee because it keeps their profit margins higher. And I know that kind of sounds self-serving, but unfortunately, us as consumers are not the drivers of that. It's the investors in these companies, whether they be angel investors or people in the stock market. They don't care how innovative and magical your devices are. They care about your profit margins. And if those start shrinking, you get people that start getting nervous and then bad things happen. Yeah, that's that's ultimately the whole point of a company, large or small, to make money and grow. So we can't really criticize them for making money and growing because that's really what they're supposed to be doing. We can maybe poke a little bit at how uh, they're going about it. I, and I, say, I don't disagree yeah, with you. But, I mean, I'm a capitalist at heart too. Like I mean, like that that's really what it comes down to. But the the reality is is that unless there's some restraints, that goes into bad territory. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the idea is you have to put restraints on just making money at all costs, right? There, if we don't put restraints on it, we see what unrestrained capitalism mm-hmm. does. That's why we have regulation. And wow, we're really flirting with politics right now. But the idea being, I think it is okay <laughs> to have an opinion that maybe, maybe you don't make as much money, but you do the right thing. It's okay to have that opinion. It's okay to share that opinion as a, as a consumer or someone who's in that market. But you have to, you have to weigh both sides. Like I said, it's, you need to put yourself in their shoes as well. They need to be a viable business. They need to find ways to continue to make money. I think the challenge is that it's not just making money. It's that they have to make more money every quarter. Because if they don't make more money next quarter, it's seen as a loss. Even if it's just a straight flat. If a company was wildly successful at like a 20% margin, and, and, and 20% margin is more than enough. As an independent company, they can live with that 20% margin. Everyone's fat and happy and everyone's good. The moment they enter the stock market, the moment they have investors, 20% margin last quarter means you need 22% margin this quarter. It's always growing. You always have to find ways to keep increasing profits. And that's that's the risk. And I think that's why we're seeing this move to subscription because it's it's hiding some of those additional costs. So they, because the, 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 the vendors know that if they come and say, oh, by the way, the same piece of kit that you've been buying that should be getting cheaper as we get better and everything starts being more commoditized, we need to charge an extra 5% to, uh, to, to placate our shareholders. Like no one's going to be okay with that. You know what I'm saying? Like it needs to be, the model needs to be changed. And so I think that's really what we're running into. I think it's part of it. I think also part of it is the idea of, of reliable revenue. 
and this is the not all vendors are evil. Um, it's it's great to have that money coming in regularly, whether it's yearly or monthly. It's a lot more consistent from a cash flow perspective to know I'm going to get a thousand dollars every month. Then I'm going to get possibly twelve thousand dollars this year and next year. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? Like then it's a problem. Part of it. We talked about the fact that life cycles often mm-hmm. go long. When you know when that customer chooses to run that gear for ten years, the profit for the vendor is less than the person who chooses to run it for three because the person who does it is turning right around. And so they're mm-hmm. just trying to find, you know, reliable cash flow. And, and yeah. yeah, and I get that. Reliable is uh, reliable is like candy to it, to accountants. Nobody probably, yeah, I'm speaking to the choir here as the guy who runs his own business. <laughs> well, and, and this is what I tell customers. Like um, if I come in and they've got a, you know, they've got a device that's outside of service and the thing breaks and they have to buy a new one. That's a surprise expense that they have to go to their accounting department to. And their accounting department looks at them with the eye and says that this wasn't in the budget and it's not good. And then they have to, you know, start groveling. Where if you put it on things like life cycle leases, even though it might be more expensive, it's a fixed cost every month that can be budgeted for in accounting departments like that. It's kind of the reverse angle of that. So I think this is a good point to transition. Um, Tom, Tom had brought up interesting something interesting as we were talking about topics for the show, and uh, and you had I guess written a post recently about uh, the move to five G and how it could possibly interfere with weather radar. Now I know where you're where you're at. That really matters because you know being able to predict tornadoes is a big deal, and you seem to get them quite often. Uh, so, so I can understand why this is something that's close to your heart, but I, I would like to talk a bit about that, just, just that concept to begin with, but then also, I guess that led to some interesting conversations. I kind of like to maybe shift the conversation there if we have some time. Sure thing. So, uh, real quick recap. Um, uh, one of the things that we know about natural things is they all resonate at a certain frequency. And it just so happens that water resonates at around 2.4 gigahertz. Um, that's why your microwave works is because the radiation heats the water and makes the popcorn pop. Well, because math is so awesome, water resonates at 2.4 gigahertz. It also resonates at close to 24 gigahertz, um, 23.8 to be precise, if you are a math nerd. So one of the things that has happened in the last six months is, uh, the FCC has auctioned off a block of spectrum to the, uh, people who are making 5g. And they auctioned off the block of spectrum at 24 gigahertz. Now, this is not all that uncommon. A lot of uh, things get auctioned off because they're junk bands. They're not licensed like your uh, emergency radios. So they license the bands for people to use them. Sometimes they put restrictions on them. For example, um, there are some bands in 5 gigahertz that are uh, off limits, some channels, because they interfere with uh, certain other kinds of radar. So the government just said you cannot have anything broadcasting on this channel or you can broadcast on it. You just can't broadcast very loud. Well, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, NOAA, along with NASA and the American Meteorological Society, all went before Congress this week and basically said, we really don't want you to use 24 gigahertz for 5G because we have weather satellites that are using 23.8 gigahertz to detect water vapor um, because we can hit it with a microwave and observe the results. And if we do, we know there's water vapor. And we're using that as a component of our forecast models. And if you turn on 24 gigahertz for 5G 
we predict that we are going to lose about 75% of the data that we're getting from these satellite sensors, not the whole satellite, just those sensors. And that will impact our ability to predict weather forecasts by about 30%. Now, if you're keeping track at home, a 30% reduction of forecast accuracy would roughly put us back in the 1980s. Um, so think about how accurate your seven-day forecast is right now. That accuracy level was a three-day forecast back in the 1980s, all because we're opening up these bands. So there's been a lot of discussion from NOAA and NASA saying, listen, we need to we need to do more research here. We need to figure out why this is, because this is not a problem that's easily fixed just by moving things around or saying get better sensors, because water resonates at this frequency, and that's just how nature works. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, one would hope we'd get to this point before we slow off the bands, because I imagine walking that back is going to be challenging. And, it's, and, you, and, you, and you mentioned the well, fact yeah. that these are weather satellites. So it's not like we can just like, oh, by the way, we'll just change what we're looking for. No, 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 no. That's not the way this works. <laughs> yes. We spent we spent millions yeah, exactly. getting this thing up there. Not exactly and this is the way that it operates. So we're going to change the thing we can change, yeah. which is not that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and it's not like we can beam a software update to the satellite and just say, OK, ignore this or, or figure this out. Now, potentially we could, but that's a really hard problem to solve right now with the current level of technology that we have. And so I, I, I wrote this article. Uh, it was just a little bit before we recorded this podcast. And I got some very interesting comments on it. And uh, one comment was uh, from someone who said, uh, I don't think you're really on track here because I found this article that said that the sensor that they're talking about was never actually produced. I thought, well, that was really weird. So I went and I clicked through the article. Um, and the article actually came from someone who's like an executive vice president at the CTIA. Um, and if you're not familiar with CTIA, it's the Cellular Technology Industry Association. Um, so basically, they are the advocacy group. They might be a bit biased. Yeah, yeah that, and that's – as soon as I read the – yeah. And I read through the article, and, and it really did seem like a bad faith argument. Um, we, we deal with podcasts, we deal with blog posts and generally a fact-based argument follows some certain rules, such as we lay out the facts and if we're going to pass judgment on the facts, we do it at the bottom. We, you know, facts exist up here and it's like, think of a courtroom drama. The lawyers establish the facts before they start giving their opinion in the closing statement. The problem is when you start reading through a blog post that uses weasel words like this is ridiculous or the Commerce Department doesn't know what they're doing or I can't believe they would do something like this. It tends to set a very interesting tone really quickly and you feel as though this is not an attempt to refute the facts of the case. This is more of an attempt to spin the PR in such a way as to get public opinion on your side versus theirs. And it's a hippie. Yeah, it, it just. I, I read through it and I actually had to read through it twice because the first time I read through it, I immediately dismissed it after like two paragraphs. And I was like, no, 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 wait, I'm, I'm going to make it through this whole argument, this this argument that they're laying out. Um, by the way, uh, just so that everybody on the podcast is clear, if you give incorrect information to the United States Congress, you're lying to them. That's a federal crime. Typically, government agencies don't lie to Congress for two reasons. One, federal crime. And two, your budget tends to get cut if you're lying to the people that authorize it. So I tend to believe that NOAA and NASA and the AMS are probably arguing in good faith from their perspective. I think what's happening. Not to mention, not to mention a track record. Exactly. I mean. Right. I think these organizations don't have bones to pick. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that they don't hear. I, I can't judge it until I really know all the facts. But but historically, 
you give some credence to, to organizations like NASA and NOAA because like they really, I mean, genuinely over the course of their existence have tried their best to execute their mission. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Like with facts and science. And yeah. no, NOAA is basically in charge of producing weather forecasts that can potentially save lives. I mean, at the recording of this podcast, there's currently a tornado warning in effect in the state of Oklahoma. Now, granted, it's not on top of me, but I mean, knowing that we have that much warning could be the difference between people getting killed and not. We actually had a storm that passed through a couple of days ago where the tornado spun up within the sweep of a radar beam and it killed two people. Now, I'm not saying that they could have potentially been saved if they'd have had, you know, access to a different band of, of what have you. But the technology exists today where we can issue a tornado warning 48 hours or tornado watch 48 hours in advance of really bad weather when in the 1990s, the best you could hope for was maybe eight hours of notice. So technology has gotten a whole lot better. I think the problem is there are a lot of people out there, and we, this kind of goes to an argument that we just made about unrestrained capitalism, that believe that anything out there that isn't being utilized to its fullest extent is bad, and we should immediately open up everything to be used for every purpose under the sun. And this is actually a problem in wireless right now because they're looking at making the move to six gigahertz as a transmission band. And it's probably not going to come anytime soon, but the people over at Aruba have been doing a lot of research and study on this because as it turns out, six gigahertz is also a frequency used for satellite downlinks. And so they actually had to go and prove to the FCC that using six gigahertz was not going to interfere with satellite downlinks. And they had to drive around with antennas and go figure out, okay, well, we're getting a lot of interference in this area on these antennas. Turns out that there's a satellite downlink facility in this block. So we probably can't use it here. Um, so the people who are trying to do this the right way are doing the research, they're providing all the information, and they're making good faith arguments. The people who are looking at this more as an opportunity to sell more junk or prove that they can sway public opinion are the ones that are typically making the bad faith arguments, and that bothers me. Yeah, I mm -hmm. wish you all could see Tom's face. He looks so sad right now. <laughs> it, it is. He's just, he's, it bothers me. But, but I'm with you. But I mean, I don't know. I just feel like... Uh, the cynic in me. I don't like the cynic in me coming out too much, but it is. I mean, this is just feels like social media all around, and it's not just social media, but it, it just feels. I don't know. There, there's not a whole lot of uh, genuine debate and conversation and fact based argument because I think that almost everything, like there can be two sides with fact based argument, like with you know good faith arguments, but that's just not the way our culture works anymore <laughs> yeah. it just uh, or maybe it never did maybe i'm looking back with you know with uh rose-colored glasses that you know you think it existed this way before maybe it's always been this way but i just that's just not the world that i see very often it just seems that people are you know, I, I think it's always been this way just not as magnified i was i was actually having a discussion with a friend of mine today about facebook and he was saying oh facebook has made things so much worse and it's it's it, it's got this whole effect on society. And my argument was, no, Facebook is the symptom, not the problem. It used to be that if you said something that was really, really wrong, someone was going to punch you in the face for it. And now with social media going all over the world, nobody's going to punch you in the face for it. So you can get away with things that you would never do right. face to face. And Facebook is just and, and other social media, to be fair, has just magnified that. The, the whole principle was well, there in the first place. It amplifies it, right? So I, I, I agree with that. I think the other side of it is, is that it's super easy to dehumanize in an argument when you're not immediately in front of mm -hmm. them. So when we talk about arguments that have happened, you know, 
30 years ago, if you had an argument, you were doing it with someone in the same room or you were on the phone. So at least you got the tone of voice, <laughs> you know, even phone is not great, but it's good enough. Um, but, but, you know, like the further and further away we get from people, the more disingenuous the arguments become, the more dehumanized the other person, the other side is. I think we've talked about this before um, on the show. And it, it's just, it, it's one of those things that's frustrating um, because I, I just, I, and, and maybe this is just a, please, if you're listening, don't be that person, <laughs> right? Like, don't be, don't be that person. Like, it's okay to have a dissenting viewpoint. It's okay. I, I think, <laughs> I think we have an excellent panel of people who would say it's okay for having a dissenting viewpoint. But base it in facts and try to understand the other side of the argument so that you know what you're actually arguing against. So I mean, like, because it sounds like this guy who was arguing for this was he had an agenda mm -hmm. and we all kind of roll our eyes. We're not surprised. Mm -hmm. Like his agenda was to make money for cell companies, cellular companies. Like that's his agenda. People pay him to be the advocate for that thing. That's what he does. It's kind of expected. The problem is, is that be honest about it. Yeah, well, you can't really right because then then it's not going to be as effective. But I, I there's, a, there's a word for that. It's called deceit. Yeah, <laughs> and that certainly isn't new to our time. <laughs> no, I'm very thankful for the social communities that we have because I, I like to think that our small social communities uh, have a better angle on that. Uh, to, in a lot of ways, yes, uh, we definitely aren't exempt or immune. Oh, no, uh, from, no, from no. it as, as well. I mean, I see it and there's, you know, some frustrating experiences when it comes, I mean, uh, social media and engaging with people much like the two of you. I mean, I've known the two of you for quite some time now um, has, has really, I, I say this often has changed the trajectory of my career. It's been an overall positive impact on me and my career. But as I look at it today, I'm like, would I recommend it to somebody else? It's a harder question to say yes to than what it has been historically. Um, because because mm -hmm. this is becoming more and more pervasive, even within our communities. So don't be that guy, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. yep. Moral stories. Don't be that guy. Like don't be that guy. Build up people. Don't tear them down. Don't make disingenuous arguments like that kind of stuff. If what you're people. saying is going to get you punched in the face in real life, don't say it online. Hey, there you go. There's life lessons from Jody Lemoyne. We need, we need a meme. <laughs> I think this is a good a way to segment into this next thing because I mean it's it's a bit of perception as well. Uh, something I've been contemplating lately, because I, I, to be honest, I've been feeling a bit discouraged, um, and it's just—I guess this is this is what it is. I I feel like the gap from like peak hype on something to the time that people are actually implementing it, it feels like it's it's massive. Um, Gardner has a word for this. I think they call it the trough of disillusionment, which I think is an <laughs> awesome awesome way to explain it. And I feel like I live there, which is probably not a good thing. And so I guess my question for you, as we talk about hype and being disingenuous and building things up, and I'm not, I'm definitely not pointing any fingers at companies because people need to sell things and marketing's part of the deal. My question is, is it getting worse, right? Is this idea that we're overhyping technologies much, much earlier and the gap between that and when people are actually implementing them? Because I guess the challenge for me is that in that it, it becomes harder as, a, as someone who's a consultant to have these conversations with customers. We've been talking about software-defined networking for nearly a decade, <laughs> you know, and people are just now really starting to scratch the surface, except for like the true believers. I mean, believe me, there's a bunch of networks out there that are running it, but I mean, from the enterprise and the place that I see that like, there's this huge gap and it might be that relevant as well um, as to where it's being implemented. So my question for you two, just mainly because I want your take, is do you think that that gap is getting wider or do you think it's just something that's like part of a career trajectory? Like all of a sudden people start paying more attention as they get further in a career to emerging tech and it feels like the gap's larger because you're hearing about that stuff earlier. I'm just curious. What do you guys think? 
I'll jump in. Um, I think (laughs) I'm I'm gonna give the IT answer. It's both, and and here's (laughs) the reason why. Yeah, it (laughs) it depends. But 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 there's some there's some grounded reality here. And and the the first part of it actually is the the second argument that you made. Uh, When you reach a certain point in your career, you're open to a lot more ideas. And when you when we think about this, I've I've seen this problem quite a bit uh, when I'm trying to talk to people who have a you know like a CCNA level of knowledge. They they're very focused on specific things because they don't know anything. They have all the talent in the world. They just need a little bit of of guidance. And so they're always asking questions and sometimes grizzled old network engineers kind of roll their eyes and they forget what it felt like to be down there because they've experienced so much. Um, one of my favorite stories is, is uh, Yvonne Pepelniak at one point was like, well, we were doing software defined networking back in the 90s with Radius. And I just I wanted to scream and I was like, wait a minute he's not wrong. I mean, he's not exactly right either, but the things that he's seen kind of lend him to believe that that that's the way things are. But more importantly, and this goes back to the first point that you made, um, I think that the, the, the cliff that you fall off of into the trough of disillusionment on that big Gartner wavy thing, the cliff keeps getting higher. And it's because we're starting to see more and more things before they're ready. And, you know, as we're recording this, it's the week before Apple's WWDC, um, Worldwide Developer Conference, which is specifically designed to get a whole bunch of developers into a room and show them the barely out of alpha software that is going to be working in three months or so. Um, Typical Apple new phone releases around September, new iOS releases around the same time. But the problem is people are going to watch the keynote for WWDC. And they're going to wonder why they don't have those features on their phone right now. Uh, Some of them are going to go out and get a developer account and download that thing and put it on their phone and then scream the next day because it wiped out their cellular connectivity or it broke 15 of their apps, even though there's a very big box that says, don't put this on production devices. And it's because companies are starting to use beta software as a a vehicle to convince people that they're on a certain trajectory. And we know this because of companies like Google. I mean, for God's sake, Gmail was in beta for nine years and beta was just a a fancy way of putting a tag on it to say, guess what? We're going to break stuff. So I think that that companies are giving us way too early peak before they're really ready to commit to something. And and that's just the companies that we're all familiar with, the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, because they're constantly beta testing on us. If you know anything about startup culture, oh, dear God, some of that stuff isn't even ready to be shown to anyone, let alone the public. But they're flo- they're throwing it out there in the hopes that they can get some funding. Hey, look at this really cool thing we built. And then you go actually like follow the trajectory of a company from seed to round to a series A through, you know, hopefully they get out before they get a series E. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that changes a lot of things. You know, how many times have you heard the story of, uh, hey, we were originally designed to, you know, detect cancer in lab rats. And then the next thing we know, we have a ride sharing app. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> Those two things don't work well together. Well, it turns out that from seed round to series C, they figured out that this doesn't make money, but this other component of it actually does. And so they've transformed it. Yeah. But if you followed them back when they were curing cancer in lab rats, for example, you're kind of like, well, I'm disillusioned because your your rat, your cancer-free rat technology has down, bottomed out down here. Right. We just never saw it come to fruition because of the fact that yeah, they 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 switched to the it model that work. made money. Yes, yes. 
Yeah. But at least I can get a ride share to somewhere where I can drink my sorrows oh, away. That, that's true. Amongst the 27 <laughs> other rideshare options out there. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm going to take a, a different take on it. And that is that um, we've kind of become addicted to the new. We, we, we kind of want the next greatest thing, you know, because we get tired of things quickly. Um, I follow the video game industry a little bit, and I'm a little bit old school because I don't change my video games very often. But I know a lot of other people who it's the game of the week. And, and when the new game comes along, the old game goes on the shelf and they don't play it anymore. They're playing the new one. And then that'll happen next week. We're, we're just kind of addicted to seeing the next, ba- in the next big thing because we're kind of... We don't want to be stuck in the mud, and we think that if we stick with the things that we've got, we're somehow less relevant. Now, when when we have these things coming along saying, oh, this is the next great thing, everyone's going, yeah, let's have it. Let's do it. Let's, where is it? And it's not there. Meanwhile, if we really think about it at a baseline, there isn't a business case for it yet. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I, I think the the challenge here is, I think, actually amongst us, because companies will hype. And we're never going to change that. That's just what they're going to do. Like, and again, I understand it. Marketing's mm-hmm. part of it. Getting funding's part of it. And I don't fault any of them for doing that. I feel like there's a level of, of I'm going to call it peer pressure. I don't know if that's a correct term for it or not, that the community gets excited about it. And as the community gets excited about it, you're not cool unless you're doing the cool new thing. And meanwhile, like 99% of the people are doing the now not cool thing because that's what we've done and it works well and it's proven uh, works well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Air quotes works well. It works, it works. right? We've, we've survived <laughs> off of what we've been doing. And yeah, I mean, like it's almost, it almost feels like there are people out there who will call you, you know, like, you know, oh, you're so behind the times because you're not doing this thing that's like on the bleeding edge. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there's a, a progression to things. I think you need those people on the bleeding edge to push those things because they're the ones who make it possible for the large majority to go there. But I think we as a community sure. are very bad about kind of like, you have to be doing, I mean, how, how, how long have we talking about, been talking about how every networker needs to be a programmer? And now in the past year and a half, I've heard this come back and push back on that in mass. No, 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 no. You have to have some scripting skills, but you don't have to be a programmer because programmers spend lifetime working on those skills. And like, wait a minute, this is what the masses were saying five years ago. Like the, the large masses were like, not everyone's going to become a programmer. That doesn't make any sense. But man, if you said that out loud, you kind of got like, you know, <laughs> you got shoved down because eventually everyone because comes programming is the way it's going to be. And it's like, well, hold on. It's going to be some mix of that. Like, yes, coding is going to be a part of our lives and you can't be ignoring that. But is it going to change the 100% the profile of a networker? No. <laughs> like, we no. still need this. The code that's and necessary like- to... The code that's necessary to bring those co- those pieces together is not the same as the coding that's necessary to build the whole, fr- the right. whole infrastructure. And as we see it, as these things mature, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we can let the programmers build interfaces for these things. So the, the networkers aren't the ones actually hitting the API, but you're actually using a tool to hit the API, <laughs> you know, which makes it better. And we build a better tool because of the fact that now, now we have that available. And oh, wait a minute, the networker never had to be a programmer to begin with because he's just going to use a different tool rather than a CLI. He's going to have some other mechanism to interact with the system. And so I think that, I think that's part of it. Like as I see these emerging trends, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, that's never going to happen and not see progress. Like, I don't want to hold that back. But I also don't want to be the guy who's like all in at the beginning. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle and it makes me feel like I'm completely out 
I'm bearing, but I sold a bit too much here, probably. But I feel like I just feel like I feel like I'm stuck in the middle between two camps: the camp that is that is stuck in the mud, don't want to progress, and the camp that just wants to live on the bleeding edge. And I'm like, progress is slow, and people change very, very slowly. Like, let's take this incrementally. And again, I appreciate those people who live on that bleeding edge because they make it possible. But not everybody needs to be there. Well, mm-hmm. I think I think what's important is that the person who's in the middle has a very important role to play. They're holding the leash of the people who want to run as fast as possible and dive off of the cliff into the trough of disillusionment. But they're also grabbing another rope and dragging the laggards behind because, the, you know, we see those very clear distinctions in there. The people who are have a first mover advantage are generally not the people who develop the technology. Um, when you look at something like the original Apple One computer, that doesn't work at scale because you have to hand build every computer. So you have to figure out how to make that work at a large scale. And so what you end up having to do is you have to solve some different problems. And that takes people who are not like, you know, driving forward. Let's, let's be honest. Steve Jobs, visionary. Steve Jobs sucks at making things work in production. He's the throw your hat over the fence kind of person. Uh, you know, so for every John Kennedy, you have throwing your hat over the fence. You've got a whole bunch of people at NASA who are looking at this solution going, we need to figure out how to build a rocket that's going to put somebody on the moon and bring them back. And then you got a whole bunch of engineers sitting in the back of the room going, we need to make sure that he comes back without being splattered on the inside of the capsule. So we need to build some safety things. in there. So there's very clear distinctions between all of those. And they're all very important because it doesn't do you any good to put an astronaut on the moon in, I don't know, 1963 if you're not going to go pick him up until 1966. <laughs> Tom's making me feel better about being in the middle. I appreciate that. You're a good friend, Tom. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> and being in the middle is not a bad thing. Like we all play with the bleeding edge in the lab. We all do proof of concepts to see how is this going to play? How's this going to work? doesn't necessarily mean we're putting it out in a production system. But we're ready for it when it comes, and we can gauge for ourselves when it's ready for production. The hype doesn't change that. It's applicability to current needs. I guess, I guess my, my take on this, and, 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 and the reason why I think it's frustrating, is like sometimes something comes out that is absolutely worth discussing. You know what I'm saying? Like Something comes out and it's like, oh yeah, this is absolutely going to change the way that things work. And you have the vendors out there just like, you know, screaming from the rooftops, this is the way it needs to be done. And then you go talk to customers who are change averse and they're like, oh, no, that's a that's a step too far. They're not wrong. Right? The customers aren't wrong. They know what they can handle in their environment. They definitely don't want to push too hard. Maybe they're stuck. Maybe they aren't. But the reality is, is that, you know, they don't have a pressing need to push that far. So they don't. We're hearing it from this and kind of sitting in that middle is, the, is this dichotomy because we understand the value and we're trying to communicate that. But meanwhile, rightful restraint in places makes sense. Like you said, the people who are going forward, there's a role for everybody. Uh, I just think that middle role is the one that's infuriating because I like I buy it. Like when we talk the automation to bring it back, like I buy it, like automation and programmability and all those things are going to just fundamentally make networking better, less error prone. Like there's some great things that are going to come from it. It still needs to be even today more refined. Like it's not quite there for everybody yet. And the people who are using it, great. And if you can find uses for it, great. Like, and I encourage that and you should be learning that. But the reality is, is that, you know, widespread adoption for, for automation is still down the line a bit. Like, and, and, and that's okay. And not necessary. Right. And, and these technology. And I, I just think that, I think that we miss the idea that change is slow. 
<laughs> right? And, and it just in general, people oh. change and adoption, especially in an industry that has been stuck for 25 years, where we really haven't changed anything in a very long time. Mm -hmm. It's going to take some time to, to, to make some of these big changes. And I guess I'm just feeling that dichotomy of like, I see the vision and I'm in, I agree, that's great. And then I'm, I'm, I have, you know, my client base, the people that I work with who are actually running networks, because none of them are mine to run, you know what I'm saying? Like, none of them are actually my responsibility, where yeah, they're going, oh, that sounds good, but let's uh, hold off a little bit. We'll see, we'll see how that plays out. Well, here, here's, here's the other thing about hype. Um, hype is a 100% both boots in thing. It's like you, you get the idea and you say, I'm all about it, let's run with it. When the reality is, it's a good thing because there's pieces of it that we want not necessarily all of it. So I'll give you network programmability as an example. Do I necessarily think all networks are going to be, need to be programmed by every network engineer out there in the next five years? Oh, no, that's not going to be so. Some will, for sure. But the advantage of that being pushed by those front runners and those middlemen and the people who are bringing it along is that there are aspects we can take advantage of. We'll sit there and be curmudgeons about uh, SNMP and various things that we can and can't control with our our existing tools. We'll look at things like uh, Ansible and say, oh, we've got all these plugins that will let us take care of our legacy stuff. But ultimately, taking care of all that legacy stuff with these tools is a bit of a hack. We're moving to things like API-first designs. API-first designs are essential for network programmability. Does that mean we're going to use them 100%? No, but wouldn't it be really nice if I can go in and grab something through the API that they didn't give me in the GUI or the CLI? That, that's, that's really good. I'll take advantage of those little pieces even if I'm not diving in with both boots. All right. I think this is a good place to wrap things up. Um... We, we we picked a few topics here that were a little uh i don't know i pushed my buttons a bit on the on the licensing and even on the on the hype thing because i think that's uh maybe i'm alone but i think these are things that everyone's thinking about or at least a lot of people are so it's going but, to change the universe it's going to change right. the universe absolutely so but before we go um jody i hear like you're like speaking and writing and doing all kinds of things where can people find you these days i'm totally out of my comfort zone these days oh, that's usually know? a good thing yeah well, it's, it's until awesome. it kills you and then it's a well, until thing. it kills me. Yeah, but that which does not kill me and all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, being brought in on a couple of writing things um, uh, over the next few weeks. I'm uh, doing some stuff with Aruba on uh, Thursday. I'm actually uh, speaking at a Dell and Big Switch event in Toronto, which was quite cool. Well, that's neat. Um, yeah, that's a new experience for me. Uh, you so know, this will be coming out. This will be coming out Wednesday. This, this is coming out the day before you speak. So, so yes. where where are where are you going to be speaking? Is this something that people could go to? Uh, they could. Uh, it's an event at uh, in Toronto. Uh, I believe uh, Big Switch and Dell are co-hosting it. It's uh, at the Morton Steakhouse in Midtown. Oh, fun. I'm sure if you do, uh, if, you, if you follow my Twitter feed uh, at, at Ghost in the Net, I've been retweeting it whenever Big Switch and Dell have been posting things about it just so that everyone gets it out there. Awesome. So uh, that's going to so, be fun. Good deal. You mentioned your Twitter account blog. Uh, yeah, actually, I've got one now, and I realize I don't blog nearly enough because I went back through my whole history and realized I have all of 14 articles, so I need to be more consistent. Uh, I can be found, uh, my blog is at www.ghostinthenet.info. Awesome. Tom Hollingsworth, where can't we find you? That list might be shorter. <laughs> uh, home. At home. Uh, that, yes. That's, 
Yeah. So let's see here. Um, I am going to be um, taking my first trip to uh, Palo Alto event. And we're going to be at Palo Alto Ignite in Austin. Just uh, kind of checking things out, see what it's going to be about. Um, some interesting security conversations to have or not have, as the case may be. <laughs> uh, then we're going to be uh, at Cisco Live uh, in June. Uh, in fact, Jordan and Jody are going to be joining me along with a bunch of other really awesome people. And uh, we are going to have some live video and a whole bunch of other great stuff. Uh, that is, I'm not going to sleep that week. And then <laughs> I'm going to go ever home sleep and get like, no, I don't. Nobody sleeps at Cisco Live. I, I, uh, I, then I, the I had a friend tell me he was going to study at Cisco Live and I just <laughs> laughed. <laughs> He's studying for a test. I'm like, you're not going to study for that at Cisco Live. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then the the, uh, the next week we've got Security Field Day uh, going to be in Silicon Valley. Uh, got some great companies that are going to be speaking there as well. Um, and some Tara, somehow in all of that, uh, I'm going to be writing some. So um, you can check out my blog at networkingnerd.net, or if you want to read some more of my uh, my briefings and things like that, you can always head over to uh, gestaltit.com and click on my name. You can see all the stuff I've been covering. There. And for the uh, for the events, that would be techfieldday.com, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Techfieldday.com. Uh, give you a list of all the things we got coming up this year. And uh, when we've got something going on, you can watch live streaming video and uh, lob some uh, snark my way on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, if you haven't at this point uh, yet seen Tech Field Day, you need to go check it out. Awesome resource. Uh, lots of great events. Um, lucky to have been involved with it for the past four or five years. Uh, Tom keeps inviting me back, which is which is nice of him. But uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to uh, to doing uh, an extra event at Cisco Live for Tech Field Day. Uh, I believe uh, it's settled that I will be the only one from Network Collective at Cisco Live this year. So come say hi. I'll be all lonely. Not really true, but I would love to. <laughs> I would love to. Uh, if you're a listener of the show, uh, I would love to meet you. Uh, so we'll be around. Um, come find me, hit me up on social media, uh, send me a direct message. Uh, however, you need to get a hold of me, carrier pigeon, whatever. Um, but I would really like to like to say hi and, uh, and meet as many people as possible because that's, uh, that's one of the best things about the whole, the whole conference thing. So, um, if you like this episode, we have lots more like it. We're at two years now, so, uh, you can go to the network collective.com. Lots of episodes, just like it. Um, uh, just a quick reminder, um, listener survey. If you, if you haven't done it yet, you should have done it. I asked you to do it like uh, 45 minutes ago. I don't know why it's not done yet. But if you haven't done it yet, uh, thenetworkcollector.com, uh, there's a banner on the page. You can just click on it and go there. Uh, and I think that's it. So thanks a lot to our, to our guests. Thanks a lot for listening. And we will see you next time.